Welcome to Ascension Development, the podcast. Right, welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. My name is George Dvorsky. I'm a blogger at sentientdevelopments.com and chairman of the board at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. The Sentient Developments podcast deals with such topics as science, technology, futurism, and transhumanism. But for today's episode, we're going to tackle two fairly broad topics. During the first half of the episode, we're going to describe megascale engineering and interstellar colonization and in, in particular going to describe how we could possibly go about building a Dyson sphere and how we could possibly go about colonization of the entire Milky Way galaxy and how, could actually, how we could actually go about controlling it even with uh, what are dubbed von Neumann probes or self-replicating probes and in the second half of the podcast going to go over a number of issues as it pertains to the simulation argument and the question as to whether or not we actually may choose to create simulations or whether or not we even find ourselves with living within a simulation. So those are going to be the two themes for today. But before we get started, I uh, just have to comment on the weather that we're experiencing here in the greater Toronto area. This, it's, uh, we are in today, uh, it is uh, the third week of March, or fourth week of March, depending on how you want to look at it. So technically, uh, we just uh, a couple of days ago had the... Um, we just went into spring season, but the weather has been unreal. We are in the, in terms of uh, Celsius, we are in the mid 20s. So yesterday was about 21, 22, and today, by all accounts, it's going to be 25. And I bring that up because it's just very rare to have those kinds of temperatures at this time of year. It's definitely shorts and t-shirts weather. And uh, while it's wonderful, and uh, I'm certainly um, enjoying every single second of it, it does kind of worry me about what kind of summer we're going to have, because usually when you have a spring that's like this, it means that uh, there's going to be drought conditions later on in the summer, and in addition, it's going to introduce a whole host of pests into the environment, and that could wreak havoc on the trees and uh, other vegetation as well. But uh, anyways, just enjoying the fantastic weather. I've been getting out a lot to, to the gym. We've been doing a lot of running as a result. And the, over the course of the winter, you don't do a lot of running when it comes time to CrossFit. Uh, so um, now's the time to kind of get those uh, uh, those legs all shaken out and getting into the running. And speaking of CrossFit, uh, we are now on the final leg, the last week of the CrossFit Open. One last event to go through, which will be this coming weekend. And the final workout is actually a reprise of a workout that we did at last year's CrossFit Open. It's a very straightforward one. It just involves thrusters and chest-to-bar pull-ups. And it's a ladder, so we're increasing. So for men, the weight will be 100 pounds even. And for women, I'm thinking it'll probably be about 75 pounds or so. That's probably what we're looking at. And what it is is... Um, you start off doing, it's kind of like a Fran-like workout uh, for those who know CrossFit. And uh, for the first set, we're doing three thrusters at 100 pounds and then three chest-to-bar pull-ups. Then for the second, it'll be six and six, and then nine and nine and so on. So incrementing by three every round. 
And we've only got seven minutes, so it's high intensity given it's only a seven-minute workout. And uh, basically, you just have to go and count how many reps you get, and that will be your final score. Now, I did this one last year, so I, and I know I know what my score was. I actually got 67, so that I was into the the round. I just started the round of 15 at that point. So I, I definitely want to do better than that this year. So I've got a, at least I've got a nice target in my mind. It helps to it does help to visualize a target and a pace. Uh, so that you can exceed it, and uh, that's uh, how I'm going to go about it this this time around. All right, so that's the uh, that's the uh, updates I have for you on the goings on this week. Nothing particularly special. So let's take a break, and when we get back, I'm going to tell you how we could build a Dyson sphere in five relatively easy steps. So I'm thinking we should build a Dyson Sphere. And why wouldn't we want to? You know, by enveloping the sun with a massive array of solar panels, humanity would graduate to a Type 2 Kardashev civilization, capable of utilizing nearly 100% of the sun's energy output. A Dyson Sphere would provide us with more energy than we would ever know what to do with while dramatically increasing our living space. Given that our resources here on Earth are starting to dwindle, and combined with the problem of increasing demand for more energy and living space, this would seem to be a good long-term plan for our species. So, implausible, you say, something that is only really a possibility for our distant descendants? Well, think again. Because I think that we're actually closer to being able to build a Dyson Sphere than we think. In fact, we could conceivably get going on such a project in about 25 to 50 years. And we could actually even complete the first phase of the project in only a few decades. And I'm being very serious. And now, before I tell you, though, as to how we could go about doing such a thing, let's just do a quick review of what we mean by a Dyson Sphere, because it can mean different things to different people in different contexts. So the Dyson Sphere, which is also referred to as a Dyson Shell, 
That's the brainchild of the physicist and astronomer Freeman Dyson. Now, back in 1959, he put out a two, just a two-page paper, and it was titled Search for Artificial Stellar Sources of Infrared Radiation, in which he described a way for an advanced civilization to utilize all of the energy radiated by their sun. Now, this hypothetical megastructure, as envisaged by Dyson, would be the size of a planetary orbit and consist of a shell of solar collectors or habitats around the star. And using this model, all, or at least a significant amount, of the energy would hit a receiving surface where it can be used. So Dyson speculated that such a structure would be the logical consequence of the long-term survival and escalating energy needs of a technological civilization. And while he was certainly thinking about the potentials for extraterrestrial life and how we could go about looking for it, he was clearly also thinking ahead to human possibilities as well. So, given this kind of a model, needless to say, the amount of energy that could be extracted in this way is mind-boggling. And, of course, a number of thinkers have done the math and crunched the numbers. And take Anders Sandberg, for example, who's an expert on such stuff. He uh, figures that a Dyson sphere in our solar system that's in a radius of uh, 1 AU, 1 AU being an astronomical unit, which, the, which is roughly the distance between um, the Earth and the Sun, it would have a surface area of 2.72 times 10 to the power 17 kilometers squared, which is pretty inconceivable. You can imagine uh, the kind of surface area we're talking about, uh, given, uh, again, that 1 AU distance to the sun. So that's around 600 million times the surface area of the Earth. And the sun itself, its energy output is around 4 times 10 to the power 26 watts. Again, that's 4 times 10 to the power of 26 watts. That's a unbelievable number. And uh, we could tap into most of that energy and reroute it to do useful work for us. And I'll get into what we could actually do with that a bit later. Now, it's worth noting at this point that a Dyson sphere may not be exactly what you think it is. Science fiction tends to portray it as a solid shell enclosing the sun, usually with an inhabitable surface on the inside. Now, such a structure would... Unfortunately, it's a physical impossibility. The tensile strength required to support such a structure is just far too extreme. And moreover, it would be susceptible to severe drift. So this gigantic shell would be prone to gravitational forces and other um, uh, and related forces. It would drift away and drift in undesirable ways. So that's not, not a solid structure. A solid shell is not the way to go about it. Now, Dyson's original proposal simply assumed that there would be enough solar collectors around the sun to absorb the starlight, and not that they would form this so-called continuous shell. Rather, the shell would consist of independently orbiting structures around, he thought, maybe a million kilometers thick. I don't think some recent models would show that these panels need to be that thick, um, but that it would contain more than one to the power ten, uh, sorry, one times ten to the power five objects. So lots of basically. Uh, many, many, many objects, all of them these solar collectors, uh, in some kind of configuration enveloping the sun. So consequently, a Dyson sphere would consist of solar captors in any number possible of configurations. Take, for example, a Dyson swarm model, where there'd be a myriad of solar panels situated in various orbits. It's generally agreed that the uh, swarm model is the best approach. But another plausible idea is that of the Dyson bubble, in which you've got solar sails as well as solar panels that would that would be put into place and balanced by gravity and the solar wind pushing against it. 
Now, for the purposes of this discussion, I'm just going to uh, describe um, the swarm model, which is also referred to as a, as a type 1 Dyson sphere. And that will consist of a large number of independent constructs orbiting in a dense formation around the sun. Now, the advantages of this approach is that such a structure could be built incrementally. Moreover, various forms of wireless energy transfer could be used to transmit energy between its components and the Earth. So in other words, we don't have to build the whole thing all at once, and we could start to even reap the benefits of it early on in its development and uh, easily transmit energy between its components and uh, the, where the energy needs to go, namely the Earth, for example. So how could we go about what would be the largest construction project ever undertaken by humanity? Well, as noted, a Dyson Swarm can be built gradually, and in fact, this is the approach we should take. The primary challenges of this approach, however, is that we will need advanced materials, which many of which we still do not possess, but we will likely develop in the coming decades thanks to such things as molecular nanotechnology. The other thing we will need are autonomous robots to mine for the materials and build the panels in space. We don't have this kind of uh, robotics capability yet or, or automotive capability, but again, nothing that uh, uh, these aren't these don't seem to be challenges, neither the materials challenge or the robotics challenges that we won't be able to, let's say, overcome in, let's say, the next half a decade. We're getting very close to having these sorts of tools already. So, um, how, given that we can overcome these kinds of technological challenges, how could we start the construction of a Dyson sphere? We'll take a model that was put forth by Oxford Uni University physicist Stuart Armstrong. Now, he's devised a rather ingenious and startlingly simple plan for doing so and one that he claims is almost within humanity's collective skill set. Armstrong's plan sees five primary stages of construction, which, when used in a cyclical manner, would result in increasingly efficient and even exponentially growing construction rates, such that the entire project could be completed within a few decades. Now, broken down into its five basic steps, the construction cycle looks like this. First, we need to get the initial energy to get the project started. Secondly, we're going to mine mercury. We need materials. Thirdly, we need to get these materials into orbit. Fourth, make the solar collectors in space. And lastly, we're going to extract the energy from our new solar collectors. And then we restart the process again, now with a new energy source being our little uh, micro uh, component of the Dyson sphere. Now, the idea is to build the entire swarm in iterative steps and not all at once. We would only need to build a small section of the Dyson Sphere to provide the energy requirements for the rest of the project. Thus, construction efficiency will increase over time as the project progresses. And Armstrong says that we could do it now. It's just a question, again, of the materials and the automation. And yes, you got that right. We are going to have to mine materials from Mercury. Actually, we'll likely have to take the whole planet apart. The Dyson Sphere will require a horrendous amount of material. So much so, in fact, that we would want to completely envelop the sun. If we want to completely envelop the sun, we're going to have to disassemble not just Mercury, but Venus, some of the outer planets, and any nearby asteroids as well. Now, why Mercury first? Well, according to Armstrong, we need a convenient source of material close to the sun. Moreover, it has a good base of elements for our needs. Now, Mercury has a mass of 3.3 times 10 to the power 23 kilograms, and slightly more than half of its mass is usable, namely iron and oxygen, which can be used as a reasonable construction material. Uh, the one put forth by Armstrong is hematite. 
And uh, the useful mass of mercury then is 1.7 times 10 to the power of 23rd kilograms, which once mined and transported into space and converted into solar captors, that would create a total surface area of 245 g over m squared. Now this phase one swarm would be placed in orbit around Mercury and would provide a reasonable amount of reflective surface area for energy extraction. There are five fundamental but fairly conservative assumptions that Armstrong relies upon for this plan. Now first, he assumes that it'll take 10 years to process and position the extracted material. Second, that 51.9% of Mercury's mass is in fact usable. Third, that there will be one-tenth efficiency for moving material off-planet, with the remainder going into breaking chemical bonds and mining. And fourth, that we'll get about one-third efficiency out of the solar panels. And lastly, that the first section of the Dyson Sphere will consist of a modest one-kilometer square surface area. Now here's where it gets interesting. Construction efficiency will at this point start to improve at an exponential rate. Consequently, Armstrong suggests that we break the project down into what he calls 10-year surges. Basically, we should take the first 10 years to build the first array, and then using the energy from that initial swarm, fuel the rest of the project. Using such a schema, Mercury could be completely dismantled in about four 10-year cycles. In other words, we could create a Dyson swarm that consists of more than half the mass of Mercury in 40 years. And should we wish to continue, it would only take about another year to disassemble Venus. And assuming we go all the way and envelop the entire Sun, we would eventually, after the completion of the Dyson sphere, have access to 3.8 times 10 to the power 26 watts of energy. Hence, our introduction, our graduation to Kardashev two-phase civilization, what could also be referred to as Dysonian existence. And once phase one construction is complete, again, the uh, the Mercury phase, the phase one phase, we could use this energy for other purposes like megascale supercomputing, building mass drivers for interstellar exploration, or for continuing to build and maintain the Dyson sphere. Now, interestingly, Armstrong would seem to suggest that this might be enough energy to serve us. But other thinkers like Sandberg suggest that we should keep going and build the entire Dyson sphere. But in order for us to do so, we would have to deconstruct more planets. Sandberg con contends that both the inner and the outer solar system contains enough usable material for various forms of Dyson spheres with a complete 1 AU radius, which would be around 42 kilograms per meter squared of the sphere. Clearly, should we wish to truly attain Kardashev 2 status, this is the way we should go. And why go all the way? Well, it's very possible that our appetite for computational power will become quite insatiable. It's hard to predict what a post-singularity or post-biological civilization would do with so much computing power. Some ideas include ancestor simulations or even creating virtual universes within universes. In addition, an advanced civilization may simply want to create as many positive individual experiences as possible. It would be a kind of utilitarian imperative. Regardless, digital existence appears to be in our future, so computation will eventually become our most valuable and sought-after resource. That said, whether we build a small array or one that envelops the entire sun, it seems clear that the idea of constructing a Dyson sphere should no longer be relegated to science fiction or our dreams of the deep future. Like other speculative projects, like the space elevator or terraforming Mars, we should seriously consider putting this alongside our other near-term plans for space exploration and work. 
And given the progressively worsening condition of Earth and our ever-growing demand for living space and resources, we may have no other choice. you want to take over the galaxy. I think that's a good career move. Ultimately, you're hoping to communicate with extraterrestrials, colonize entire sets of star clusters, and eventually lord it over the entire Milky Way. You've got the motive, but what about the means? Well, forget about your generation ships, suspended animation, or ring worlds. The best way for you to explore, colonize, and ultimately rule the Milky Way will be through the use of self-replicating robotic spacecraft, what are sometimes referred to as von Neumann probes. Now, back in the late 1940s, the brilliant mathematician John von Neumann wondered if it might be possible to, to design a non-biological system that could replicate itself. Von Neumann wasn't thinking about space exploration at the time, but other thinkers like Freeman Dyson, Eric Drexler, Ralph Merkel, and Robert Friedis later took this idea and applied it to exactly that. The strength of von Neumann's idea lies in the brute efficiency of exponential growth. Given enough time and patience, a single self-replicating probe could produce millions upon millions of offspring. It would be like a massive bubble expanding outward into the galaxy. It's possible that these probes could come to occupy all four corners of the Milky Way in as little as half a million years, even if each probe travels at an average cruising speed of one-tenth the speed of light. And I've even heard other models showing even quicker than that, even as little as 100,000 years. 
In order to work, however, a von Neumann spacecraft would have to be put together using advanced nanotechnology and artificial intelligence, technologies that we have yet to develop. In fact, the device itself would be a molecular assembler, capable of reconstituting matters into copies of itself. A number of scientists and sci-fi writers have speculated over the years about the different kinds of probes we might want to construct once we're ready to explore space in this fashion. Other thinkers, namely astro-sociobiologists, have wondered if extraterrestrials have constructed probes of their own. Now, I recently took a look at these visions and came up with a von Neumann probe taxonomy, and I came up with seven basic spacecraft functions. They are as follows. Exploration, communication, working, colonization, uplifting, berserking, and policing. Now, these tasks don't have to be exclusive to a single probe. It's possible that probes will be fairly versatile, able to change their functions as circumstances dictate. That said, you're likely going to need all these probes in your effort to take over and control the Milky Way. So here's how the different probes will work. So let's take the first one, which are exploration probes. Now these probes would be designed strictly for space exploration and surveillance. They would not contact or interact with other intelligent civilizations. Now we've already created such probes, and they're namely Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Although strictly speaking, they are not von Neumann replicators. Exploration probes could remain local and explore our solar system, what has been dubbed astro-chicken probes, or they could be sent on interstellar missions to explore and transmit their findings back to Earth. Admittedly, the timescales in question are significant, at least to modern human lifespans and our reasonable expectations for return on investment. But the information these probes could provide would be invaluable. They could study foreign solar systems in exquisite detail and even alert us to the presence of extraterrestrial life. These probes could also act as stationary reconnaissance stations. They could take residence in a data-rich area and continuously beam that information back to Earth, all without ever being detected. The second kind of a probe is the communication probe, which is also known, by the way, as a bracewell probe. The current SETI strategy of targeting stars and listening for radio signals has an extremely slim chance of success. It's very much a needle-in-the-haystack kind of approach. That said, given the assumption that civilizations want to communicate with us, a more efficient way for them to make contact would be to disseminate self-replicating communication probes across the galaxy. Now, dubbed Bracewell probes, and that's named after Ronald N. Bracewell, who thought of the idea back in 1960, these devices would work as an alternative to interstellar radio communication between widely separated civilizations. This strategy only makes sense given the inefficiency and weakness of radio signals emitted from the source planet. Now, Christopher Rose, an electrical engineer at Rutgers University, he suggested that we should actually look for these probes in our own solar system, and he argues that we should be checking the mail instead of waiting for a phone call. Multiple Bracewell probes could also be set up as a distributed array of communications relay stations. Now, such a setup was portrayed in Carl Sagan's Contact. And in the story, a dormant Bracewell probe was lying in wait in the Vega system. It began to transmit a strong signal after it received a radio signal from Earth. The device itself was part of a larger network of probes, as witnessed later by Ellie's journey from probe to probe. The third kind of von Neumann probe would be a worker probe. And if we're going to embark on mega-scale engineering projects, we're going to need robots, lots of them. And uh, this is the kind of probe, by the way, that we would conceivably use when making our Dyson Sphere. Um, 
these probes would be uh, basically, well, sorry, to actually go about a megascale project, uh, like Dyson Spheres or Ring Worlds or Alderson Discs, we would require fleets of specialized and artificially intelligent probes working in concert to construct these truly massive structures. Given the sheer scale of these projects and the amount of matter that would have to be subverted, it's not unreasonable to assume that millions of individual probes would be required. The most sensible way to construct and dis disseminate these probes would be through self-replication schemes. These probes could also be put to work as mining machines that dig out and transport matter across vast distances. Ideally, these probes would be programmed to work together to take advantage of swarming intelligence and emergent, emergent properties. The fourth kind of probe is the colonization probe. The advent of molecular assembling nanotechnology will make it possible for probes to go about interstellar colonization. It's conceivable that a von Neumann probe could find a, a suitable planet and use the matter around it to not just reproduce itself, but to establish a colony and seed actual settlers. Such settlers would likely be uploaded consciousness patterns. This would obviously require an advanced mind emulation scheme, powerful artificial intelligence, and advanced supercomputing. Ideally, these conscious patterns would be able to migrate to a robotic body for corporeal investigation of the environment. The number of settlers in any given location could be significant, limited only by computational resources. Colonization probes could also construct data receivers and transmission stations so that uploaded persons could travel as digital data streams from one point to another. Consequently, the dream of traveling at the speed of light will someday be possible. Colonization probes, sometimes referred to as cedar probes, could also perform, perform double duty as terraformers. Take Project Genesis, for example, as portrayed in the Star Trek films, um, utilized such a probe which was able to transform a dead planet into one that suited the needs of its future inhabitants. Fifth, there are the potential, there is the potential for uplift probes. Now, probes could also work to transform and uplift other civilizations and their citizens. Now, this scenario was explored in the film 2001, A Space Odyssey, in which an advanced extraterrestrial civilization used probes, called monoliths, to steer the direction of evolution on Earth. In the story, these probes endowed primates with the capacity to use tools, and later, the human David Bowman was transformed into the next stage of evolution, the so-called Star Child. This scenario was also explored in David Brin's Uplift series, in which advanced civilizations brought sapiens to primitive life forms, what's more accurately termed biological uplift. Also conceivable is technological or civilizational uplift, in which an extraterrestrial intelligence brings an entire civilization up to its own advanced level. Motivations for doing so could involve meta-ethical imperatives meant to reduce suffering, to prevent civilizations from destroying themselves, or to ensure the safe onset of non-threatening post-singularity intelligences. Or it could be part of your plan to take over the galaxy. Uplift probes could quickly bring a civilization to a post-singularity, post-biological condition. Such a force might appear as a colonization wave, wave that sweeps across the galaxy, transforming all that it touches into computronium. Such a scenario has been projected by such thinkers as Hans Moravec and Ray Kurzweil. The sixth type of probe is the Berserker probe. And unfortunately, you're going to have to look out for malevolent probes, what Fred Saberhagen dubbed Berserkers. Just as an intelligent civilization could be used could use self-replicating probes to spread life across the galaxy, another misguided or evil civilization could do quite the opposite and destroy everything. 
Berserkers could be disseminated with the sole purpose of sterilizing every planetary system it encounters, forever eliminating the possibility for life to emerge and evolve. Should it encounter an inhabited planet, it could use any number of schemes, including nanotech-instigated ecophagy, to quickly destroy all life in a matter of hours. By using a scorched galaxy policy, a civilization could sterilize the, the Milky Way in any way, in anywhere, any time frame from about 100,000 to 500,000 years. Alternately, berserker probes could be dispersed across the entire galaxy and lie dormant, patiently waiting for signs of intelligence. Berserkers could also work to stamp out intelligent life that it deems dangerous. Andrew Sandberg, Eliezer Yudkowsky, and myself conceived of a strategy in which an advanced civilization, or galactic club, could monitor for potentially dangerous post-singular mind types and quickly stamp them out of existence. And lastly, there is the potential for what are dubbed police probes. And it's not unreasonable to suggest that probe-making civilizations would also be thinking about defensive measures. And uh, one time in conversation with Anders Sandberg, we, he came up with an idea for anti-berserker policing probes. So I've started to call them Sandberg probes as a result. Now, these devices would be on the lookout for bad news of any kind and take action. Civilizations might want to establish quarantined areas. Policing probes would ensure that nothing gets through the defense and ensure the integrity of a specified region. Xenophobic civilizations might want to set up quarantined areas to prevent mimetic infection, to prevent themselves against invasion of any kind, or simply due to a fear of the unknown. Now, the best way of stopping a replicator, argues Sandberg, is to nip it in the bud. So, to do so, an advanced civilization would require widespread surveillance and enough power to deal with possible threats. And because replicators could emerge outside of a given region of control, a civilization would want to have wild, widely stockpiled defenses. The easiest way of doing this? Yep, you guessed it. Make a replicator that spreads and builds these stockpiles and quietly waits for signs of something threatening. Okay, all of that said, where the heck are all the probes? Given all this technological potential, we, we must wonder, why haven't we encountered any of these, these extraterrestrial probes? Why haven't extraterrestrials communicated with us at all? Why haven't we been uplifted or destroyed? Now, this, conu this conundrum was first articulated by Frank Tipler, and it's become a critical driver of the Fermi Paradox. In a way, it's kind of like Fermi Paradox 2.0. It's been a cause of much of the contact pessimism that has taken root since the 1970s, and my own inclinations included. If it's so easy for probes to colonize the galaxy, well, then where the heck are they? Tipler concluded that extraterrestrials simply don't exist. Now, take Carl Sagan, though, and William Newman. They came up with a different answer. They were convinced that Tipler had it all wrong and that all this talk of probes was sheer poppycock. Sagan and Newman, in their 1983 paper titled The Solipsist Approach to Extraterrestrial Intelligence, calculated the von Neumann probes, should they exist, would eventually start to consume most of the mass in the galaxy. Consequently, they concluded that intelligent civilizations would never dare construct such probes and would try to destroy any such device as soon as it was detected. Now, I'm not so convinced of this. Probes with even a modicum of AI and smart programming could be programmed to stop after a certain reproductive threshold. Now, like take, for example, time to produce schemes or maximum number of iterations, etc. These probes wouldn't be simple, mindless automatons. Moreover, the Sagan and Newman theory violates non-exclusivity. It might explain why most civilizations wouldn't dare embark on such colonization schemes, but not all. All it would take is just one. And interestingly, Sagan and Newman seem to be arguing for countermeasures against probes, a strategy that Sandberg has argued would require self-replicating police probes. 
Moreover, as Sandberg writes, quote, One of the interesting things with the police probes is that it makes strategic sense to announce that they are around to civilizations that might break the law, yet not reveal exactly how strong they are or what their modus operandi is. So the Fermi Paradox appears to say that there are no police around here right now, end quote. Further, says Sandberg, one species' police is another species' invader. We would probably not like having some alien probe impose their view of what is an unacceptable activity on us, and vice versa. And the process of making police probes will likely be indistinguishable from making other replicators. Consequently, there might be a race to set up the first interstellar police force. At any rate, the reason for the abundance, or rather, the reason for the absence of probes, is still a mystery. And as the future ruler of the galaxy, you're going to have to assume that this is the case. So you better get going and create a fleet of self-replicating probes before somebody else does it first. Now, before we go to break and change the topic to simulation argument, I'm going to play a clip from Nick Bostrom as he's being interviewed about the Fermi Paradox. And if it figure it's apropos of the discussion, and uh, you've heard me go on and on about Fermi Paradox, but it's nice to get uh, an expert um, on on the matter to hear other, other kinds of angles and other opinions on the issue. So this is about just shy of a 10-minute clip. Again, it is the uh, the very respected Oxford professor, Nick Bostrom, on the Fermi Paradox. Nick, most scientists believe their universe is filled with the intelligent life because there's so many possibilities, so many billions of galaxies and even more stars and planets. Yet we don't see any evidence of it, but most people dismiss that. I believe that the question is exceedingly important probe of the nature of this universe. Are there enormous numbers of intelligent life forms, or are we close to unique? Mm-hmm. How can we begin to think about this issue statistically from the evidence we see? Well, the two possibilities um, that we haven't seen any uh, extraterrestrial intelligences coming here just because uh, they are uh, uh, too far away is consistent with there being a lot of them. I mean, if the universe is infinite, you might have uh, it containing maybe an infinite number of extraterrestrial civilizations, but it's still perfectly easy to explain why we haven't seen any, which is that if they are so rare that they are scattered at huge cosmic distances, that would explain the observed phenomena. So, what I believe is that the most the simplest explanation for why the universe appears empty is that the evolution of intelligent life is very hard. Um, so it's, intelligent life is very uh, rare. And that fits all the evidence we have. Uh, it seems a perfectly simple natural explanation. Um, and there is really no need to concoct complicated scenarios where there is a big conspiracy that all the aliens have where they will keep us in a zoo and, uh, you know, those things are logical possibilities, but why should intelligent life be easy to evolve in the first place? Absolutely no reason to think it. Uh, All we know is that it happened here, the one place we have looked, 
So that might suggest if it happens in one out of one case, it's likely. But, of course, there is this observation selection effect, which guarantees that no matter how unlikely it is, you know, if there are enough planets, it's going to happen somewhere, and those are the planets we would find ourselves on. Even if they were one in a billion, 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 billion planets, you know, those would be exactly the places all life would look at, and they would think that it was remarkable that life evolved there. But, of course, the observation selection effect guarantees that. So we can't infer from the fact that life evolved here, therefore it's fairly easy for life to evolve on any given planet. Um, and so, so that, that, to me, seems to answer the, um, the Fermi paradox. Um, it's not really a paradox, because there is no... What is the Fermi paradox? Well, the Fermi paradox is sort of, why is the sky empty? Why haven't we been visited by aliens? Um, and it's a and misnomer because a paradox is supposed to be where there are two arguments that each seem compelling but that are sort of in conflict with one another. But here there's just an observation that the sky is empty, but there's no reason to think it shouldn't be. Well, the conflict is, is that certainly most scientists think that the, the uh, observable universe is populated with billions of planets and the likelihood of, of even a small percentage of them and uh, having life, the famous Drake equation, uh, many feel will yield very high numbers of intelligent uh, life forms. It's certainly true that there are lots of planets, but the thing you've got to plug into the so-called Drake equation to get anything out is the probability that any one of those planets will produce intelligent life. That's an unknown quantity. And we have almost no constraints on what the magnitude of that quantity is. Um, and I think possibly what is driving the people who think that it can't be that small is that they overlook this observation selection effect, that the one sample we have, this planet, life evolved, so it seems fairly easy. Yeah. Uh, but that misses the point that even if it was ridiculously improbable, we would still find ourselves standing on a planet where that improbability occurred. If there are sufficiently many planets, it was bound to happen somewhere. So the fact that life evolves here tells us almost nothing about the probability of life evolving. Um, on the contrary, there are lo if you look more in detail at how evolution happened on this planet, there are features of that process that makes it perfectly reasonable to think that it could involve extreme coincidences. You take the stage from prokaryotic to eukaryotic life forms, from simple cells to more complicated cells. As far as we can tell from the uh, geological record, there might have been a period of over one and a half billion years during which nothing obvious happened. So it might just have been that for one and a half billion years, evolution was just playing around with random combinations and uh, eventually it got lucky. And here it happened within one and a half billion years or within 1.8 billion years, but maybe the expected time to get lucky in that random recombination could be you know, trillions of years, so longer than the universe of the life, uh, uh, longer than the lifetime of the universe. If there are sufficiently many planets, it's going to happen somewhere, and on all the planets where it happens, it's got to happen within the lifetime of that planet, which is limited by the lifetime of its sun. Um, and so if one overlooks the observation selection effect, one might well be misled to believe that this gives us some reason to think intelligent life evolves quite easily. But once you realize that, uh, then there is no reason to think that uh, the evolution is, is at all easy. And if you think about it, I mean, we've never had any sort of complexity increasing evolutionary step take place in a lab or being observed in real time. 
Um, and there are these big evolutionary periods during which we don't see a gradual increment, but that might just have been a leap. And Suppose we would find life uh, in the solar system. We've uh, looked at Mars, some people think Europa. There was uh, a few years ago uh, a little bit of a flurry with some micro microscopic uh, analysis of a Mars meteorite that people thought might have been some fossilized life. Uh, what about that? Yeah, that would be bad news. Bad news? Why? Horrible. Most people, most people would be excited <laughs> about would. that. The Everybody whole world would was be very excited. enthusiastic. I would be sad. Everybody else would be celebrating. But you but said bad news. Why, yeah. Bad news. Why? So suppose we go to Mars. We pick up a sample, and we find that there is some primitive single-cell life form that has gone extinct that lived there once. So scientifically, it would be very interesting, obviously. But um, it would be bad news for this reason. We know that there are lots of planets in the universe, billions. Um, and we also know that we haven't seen any extraterrestrials coming here and visiting us. So somewhere between there being a planet and there being a space-colonizing civilization, there is a great filter, an improbability filter, like a stage which most... Can't get through. That you can't get through, or very, very few get through. Um, so there are basically two possibilities. The great filter could be between where you have a planet and where you have a civilization like ours. Or you could have the great filter being between a civilization like ours and a space colonizing civilization. So either before us or after us. Now we sure don't want the filter to be after us because that means that we are soon about to encounter it and then we'll almost certainly go extinct. You know, maybe there is some dangerous technology that all sufficiently advanced civilization discover and they destroy themselves or whatever. So we must hope that the filter is uh, you know, behind us, that we have already been lucky and come through it. Um, but if we discover life that evolved independently of life on Earth, on some, like on Mars, um, then that rules out part of the place where the filter could be. So if, say, multicellular life forms had evolved independently on two planets in the solar system, Mars and Earth... Then it's not a filter. Then, then it can't be that hard. So the great filter then couldn't be in the first part of this, not between planet and multicellular life. Now, we could still hope that it would be between multicellular life and where we are now, but that would be a much smaller part remaining. So the probability that it's after us would increase. So if we find... You know, some simple single cellular life form on Mars that went extinct. That's bad news. But if we were to find some, I don't know, some extinct rodents or something more complicated, that would be horrible news. Because that would show that with all probability the filter is um, after us and we might get to it very soon. That's my reasoning why I hope that if we find no trace of life uh, anywhere that's good. Uh, it, it, it makes it much more probable that, that our own future will be prosperous. How break will you bend? How take what you said? And we both pretend but I start with you
doubt, some of my favorite video games of all time have been those that involve simulations. Take, for example, SimCity and The Sims. Now, when I play these games, I kind of fancy myself as a demigod, managing and manipulating the slew of variables made available to me. With a click of a mouse, I can alter the environment and adjust the nature of the simulated inhabitants themselves. There's no question that these games are becoming ever more realistic and sophisticated. A few years ago, for example, a plugin was developed for The Sims, allowing the virtual inhabitants to entertain themselves by playing none other than SimCity itself. When I first heard about this, I was struck with the vision of Russian matryoshka nesting dolls. But instead of dolls, I, I saw simulations within simulations within simulations. And then I remembered good old Copernicus and its principle of mediocrity. We should never assume that our own particular place in space and time is somehow special or unique. Thinking of the simulation matryoshka, I reflected on the possibility that we might be Sims ourselves. Why should we assume that we are at the primary level of reality? Indeed, considering the radical potential for computing power in the decades to come, we may be residing somewhere deep within the matryoshka. Consequently, we are all faced with a myriad of existential, philosophical, and ethical questions. If we are merely simulants, what does it mean to be alive? Are our lives somehow lessened or even devoid of meaning? Should we interact with the world and our fellow simulants differently than before we knew we were living in a simulation? How are we to devise moral and ethical codes of conduct? In other words, how are we to live? Well, there's no reason to get excited over this. It's a bit of speculative metaphysics that doesn't really change anything. Assuming we are in a simulation, we should live virtually the same way as if we were living in the, quote, real world. That is, that is unless, of course, those running the simulation expect something from us, which means we need to figure out what it is exactly we're supposed to do. Now, a little over 350 years ago, philosopher René Descartes was struck by a rather disturbing thought. Is it possible, he wondered, that what we think of as reality is nothing more than an elaborate hoax? Now, Descartes, who was writing in his Meditations on First Philosophy, conceived of this possibility while formulating his principle of methodological skepticism. He was trying to find a fundamental set of principles that he believed could be known without a modicum of doubt. He ended up concluding that any idea that can be doubted should be doubted, giving rise to what is known as Cartesian skepticism. Consequently, Descartes doubted a lot, including the efficacy of our senses to convey reality as it truly is. Now, he used the example of dreaming to illuminate this point. When dreaming, our senses perceive things that seem real, but do not actually exist. Quote, from Descartes. Thus, what I thought I had seen with my eyes, I actually grasped solely with the faculty of judgment, with which is in my mind. End quote. From this observation, Descartes concluded that we cannot rely solely on our, on our senses, as they may not be telling us what is necessarily true. Taking this line of inquiry further and applying it to the real world, Descartes thought it was conceivable that the reality we take for granted may actually be a complex hallucination orchestrated by some kind of powerful intelligence what he referred to as a malicious demon. 
Quote, It is at least possible that there is an all-powerful evil demon who is deceiving me, such that he causes me to have false beliefs, including the belief that there is a table in front of me and the belief that 2 plus 3 equals 5, wrote Descartes. The all-powerful evil demon, he argued, could feed us whatever experiences he chooses. I shall think that the sky, the air, the earth, colors, shapes, sounds, and all external things are merely the delusions of dreams which he has devised to ensnare my judgment, end quote. Undeniably, Descartes was on to something, but because of his place in time and history, he was unable to formulate sound technical explanations to describe how such a hoax could come about, save reference to supernatural intervention. More recently, however, philosophers and scientists have come up with novel theoretical scenarios describing how such a hoax could in fact be perpetuated. Thirty years ago, philosophers envisioned vats with floating brains that were fed sensory experiences. Today, they envision powerful haptic and neural interfaces, virtual realities, and sophisticated supercomputers running elaborate simulations. Indeed, given the radical potential for supercomputers and our growing understanding of mental state functionalism, we are, going, we are coming to realize that even consciousness is subject to analog to digital conversion. And while we no longer speak of demons, we now consider the work of superintelligences running simulations of mind-boggling complexity and power. Now, no longer relegated to the domain of science fiction or the ravings of street corner lunatics, the simulation argument has increasingly become a serious theory amongst academics and one that has been best articulated by philosopher Nick Bostrom. In his seminal paper, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation?, Bostrom applies the assumption of substrate independence, the idea that mental states can reside on multiple types of physical substrates, including the digital realm. He speculates that a computer running a suitable program could in fact be conscious. He also argues that future civilizations will very likely be able to pull off this trick and that many of the technologies required to do so have already been shown to be compatible with known physical laws and engineering constraints. Now, Similar to futurists Ray Kurzweil and Werner Vinge, Bostrom believes that enormous amounts of computing power will be available in the future. Moore's Law, which describes an eerily regular exponential increase in processing power, is showing no signs of waning, nor is it obvious that it ever will. Now, To build these kinds of simulations, a post-human civilization would have to embark upon computational mega-projects. As Bostrom notes, determining an upper bound for computational power is difficult, but a number of thinkers have given it a shot. Eric Drexler has outlined a design for a system the size of a sugar cube that would perform 10 to the power 21 instructions per second. Robert Bradbury gave a rough estimate of 10 to the power 42 operations per second for a computer with the, with the mass on order of a large planet. Seth Lloyd calculates an upper bound for a 1 kilogram computer of 5 times 10 to the power 50 logical operations per second carried on about 10 to the power 31 bits, and this would likely be done on a quantum computer or computers built out of nuclear matter or plasma. More radically, John Barrow has demonstrated that under a very strict set of cosmological conditions, indefinite information processing can exist in an ever-expanding universe. At any rate, this extreme level of computational power is astounding and it defies human comprehension. It's like imagining a universe within a universe, and that's precisely how it may be used. Now let's suppose for a moment these predictions are correct, says Bostrom. One thing that later generations might do with their super-powerful computers is run detailed simulations of their forebears or people like their forebears. 
And because their computers would be so powerful, says Bostrom, they could run many such simulations. This observation, that there could be many simulations, led Bostrom to a fascinating conclusion. It's conceivable, he argues, that the vast majority of minds like ours do not belong to the original species, but rather to people simulated by the advanced descendants of the original species. If this were the case, we would likely be it would be rational rather for us to think that we are likely among the simulated minds rather than among the original biological ones. Moreover, there is also the possibility that simulated civilizations may become post-human themselves. Bostrom writes, quote, They may then run their own ancestor simulations on powerful computers they built in their simulated universe. Such computers would be virtual machines, a, film a familiar concept in computer science. JavaScript web applets, for existence, run on a virtual machine, a simulated computer, inside your desktop. Virtual machines can be stacked. It's possible to simulate a machine simulating another machine, and so on, in arbitrarily many steps of iteration. We would have to suspect that the post-humans running our simulation are themselves simulated beings, and their creators. It turned, it, sorry, it's, it, we would have to suspect that the post-humans running our simulation are themselves simulated beings, and their creators, in turn, may also be simulated beings. End quote. Given this Matryoshkian possibility, the number of real minds across all existence should be vastly outnumbered by simulated minds. The suggestion that we are not living in a simulation must therefore address the apparent gross improbabilities in question. Again, all this presupposes, of course, that civilizations are capable of surviving to the point where it's possible to run simulations of forebears, and that our descendants desire to do so. But, as just noted, there doesn't seem to be any reason to preclude such a technological feat. So, for all we know, we're sitting on a powerful supercomputer somewhere, the mere playthings of post-human intelligences. But this is not the only possibility. There's another way that this kind of fully immersive reality could be realized one that doesn't require the simulation of an entire world. Indeed, it's quite possible that your life is not what it seems, that what you think of as reality is actually an illusion of the senses. You could be experiencing a completely immersive and totally convincing virtual reality right now, and you don't even know it. Now, how could such a thing be possible? Well, nanotechnology, of course. Now, in his book, The Singularity is Near, futurist Ray Kurzweil describes how a nanotechnology-powered neural net could give rise to the ultimate virtual reality experience. By suffusing the brain with specialized nanobots, he speculates that we will someday be able to override reality and replace it with an experience that's completely fabricated, and all without the use of a single brain jack. Here's how. First, we have to remember that all sensory data we experience is converted into electrical signals that the brain can process. The brain does a very good job of this, and we in turn experience these inputs as subjective awareness, namely through consciousness and feelings of qualia. Our perception of reality is therefore nothing more than the brain's interpretation of incoming sensory information. Now imagine that you could stop this sensory data and at the conversion point and replace it with something else. That's where the nano-neural net comes in. According to Kurzweil, nanobots would park themselves near every interneuronal connection coming in from our senses, like sight, hearing, touch, balance, etc. They would then work to, one, halt the incoming sensory signals, not difficult, we already know how to use neuron transistors that can detect and suppress neuronal firing, and two, replace these inputs with the signals required to support a believable virtual reality environment. That would be a bit more challenging. Now, as Kurzweil notes, quote, the brain does not experience the body directly, end quote. As far as the conscious self is concerned, 
the sensory data would completely override the feelings generated by the real environment. The brain would experience the synthetic signals, the synthetic signals just as it would the real ones. Clearly, the second step, generating new sensory signals, is radically more complicated than the first. Not to mention, of course, the difficulty of creating nanobots that can actually work within the brain itself. Creating and transmitting credible artificial sensory data will be no easy feat. We will need to completely reverse engineer the brain so that we can map all requisite sensory interactions. We'll also need a fairly sophisticated AI to generate the stream of sensory data that's needed to create a succession of believable life experiences. But assuming we can get a nano neural net to work, the sky is the limit in terms of how we could use it. Kurzweil notes, quote, You could decide to cause your muscles and limbs to move as you normally would, but the nanobots would in intercept these interneuronal signals, suppress your real limbs from moving, and instead cause your virtual limbs to move, appropriately adjusting your vestibular system and providing the appropriate movement and reorientation in the virtual environment, end quote. From there, we will create virtual reality experiences as real or surreal as our imaginations allow. We'll be able to choose different bodies, reside in all sorts of environments, and interact with our fellow neural netters. It'll be an entirely new realm of existence. This new world, with all its richness and possibility, may eventually supplant our very own. And in some cases, we may even wish to suppress and alter our memories such that we don't know who we really are and what we're actually living in a VR that we're actually living in a VR environment. Now, as shocking as the simulation argument is, it's arguably a revelation that's no less shocking than previous existential paradigm shifts. While undoubtedly disturbing to the people alive at the time, previous civilizations have come to grips with the knowledge that they do not live on a flat earth nor at the center of the universe. Like the simulation argument, these previous scientific epiphanies assaulted humanity's sense of itself and its cosmic importance within the universe. But just as it no longer troubles us to know that we don't live at the center of the universe, it shouldn't bother us to know that we don't reside in the, in the deepest reality. While it's tempting to diminish the realness or the validity of a virtual world, so long as certain attributes of existence exist, there's no good reason to value one realm over another. This being said, there are a number of unanswered questions about the type of simulation we could be living in answers to which could have a profound impact on our self-conception. We do not have the means yet to determine whether or not we live in a simulation, let alone the means to determine its potential type and nature. But this hasn't prevented serious spe speculation. We may be able to describe and categorize the possible simulation types and varieties of virtual life. There are, for example, what are called hard and soft simulations. The possibility exists, for example, for what philosopher Barry Dainton describes as these hard and soft simulations. Now, a hard simulation results from directly tampering with the neural hardware ordinarily responsible for producing experience, whereas people running in a soft simulation have no corporeal source. They are exclusive streams of consciousness generated by computers running the appropriate software. There is no external hardware support. So take the inhabitants of the Matrix, for example. They had bodies that existed outside of the simulation, so they would qualify as being part of a hard simulation. Sensory experience could be directly machine-controlled through the simulation of the appropriate areas of the sensory cortex, and the movements of the simulated body would be under the control of the source mind. But there would be no need for the source body to actually move. As Morpheus noted in the movie, what is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain, 
end quote. There's also the possibility for complete and partial simulations. In a complete simulation, every element of the experience is generated by artificial means. So, for example, the complete suppression of all psychological characteristics, including memory, in favor of novel ones. But in a partial simulation, only some parts or aspects of the experience are generated artificially. So, for example, you would retain your individual psychology. Dainton also describes active and passive simulants. Now, actives are completely immersed in virtual environments, but they are, in all other aspects, free agents, or as Dayton concedes, free as any agent can be. Their actions are not dictated by the program, but instead flow from their own psychologies, even if these are machine-implemented. Passive subjects, however, have a completely pre-programmed course of experiences. The subjects may have the impression that they are autonomous individuals making free choices, but they are deluded. All their conscious decisions are determined by the program. They have apparent psychologies and are conscious feeling agents, but their real psychologies are entirely suppressed or even non-existent. Other varieties of simulated life include subjects who have either retained their original psychologies or are given entirely new ones. In an original psychology simulation, a simulant has an external existence outside the simulation and retains their original psychology. Again, the matrix provides a good example. But in a replacement psychology situation, the simulant has external existence, but none of the original psychology is retained. Only consciousness is transferred. Simulation experiences could also be communal or individual. Communal simulations have a virtual environment that is shared by a number of different subjects, each with individual and autonomous psychological systems. In an individual simulation, however, there is only one real subject with an autonomous psychology. The other inhabitants of the simulation are merely automatons, part of the machine-generated virtual environment. Communal and individual simulations could also be combined, where real psychologies are, in are intermixed with automatons, and this scenario is somewhat explored in the 1999 film The Thirteenth Floor. Which leads to the next level of complexity, the idea that these simulation types could be mixed and matched. Indeed, if powerful simulation technologies were to be commonplace, it is by no means inconceivable that these simulations, particularly those of the hard variety, would be generated in sufficient numbers. One thinker who has thought of the various different combinations is Tony Fleet. While there are as many as 32 different combinations, he argues that only 9 of them are viable or logically consistent. So for example, in a partial simulation scenario, an external entity is required. Therefore, this is only possible in the hard simulation case. A partial soft simulation is therefore impossible. Fleet speculates that the only viable combinations can involve the communal-slash-active, individual-slash-active, individual-slash-passive simulation types. That said, he does not believe that we've covered all simulation types. For example, there is no distinction between physical, virtual, and mixed simulations. Some more work clearly needs to be done to create a complete simulation taxonomy along with all logically consistent combinations. So this opens the door to some remarkable possibilities. How might these simulations and virtual reality experiences be utilized by our descendants, or even our future selves? It's conceivable that people might take virtual reality trips to the past quite frequently. They would also likely be used on occasional basis during history lessons for those with a particular interest in experiencing what it was like to live during certain periods of the past. Uh, take Bostrom's ancestor simulations, for example. But such trips might also be taken for entertainment purposes. 
A future activity in a post-human world might very well involve regular immersive and interactive journeys into simulated realities. And in order to increase the, authentic uh, the authenticity of such adventures, it's quite possible that post-humans may choose to press their psychology and memories. Of course, they would recall the entire experience after reawakening in their genuine reality as their authentic selves. Which means that you might actually be an autonomous simulant with a replacement psychology living in a hard simulation. Now, if that's the case, now what? How are you supposed to live? Well, on that note, I'm going to leave that one up to you. And that concludes this week's episode of the Sentient Developments Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. I will uh, be back in about a, another week's time. We'll do it all over again. I hope you'll join me. Thank you for listening to the Sentient Developments Podcast. Until next week, have yourselves a wonderful time. I hope you have a very productive and good week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sentient Developments. Goodbye.